This is Europe. A new book catching fire across the Atlantic moves from city to city throughout the European continent, profiling people and stories from marginalized populations, those hidden in plain sight. European Jews today face their own unique challenges and opportunities depending on where they live. Just ahead, we'll talk to journalist, author, and think tanker Ben Judah about his new book, The State of Europe and the State of European Jewry. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, let's get right to our guest today. Ben Judah is director of the Transform Europe Initiative and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center. He is also a columnist at the UK's Jewish Chronicle. He is the author of three acclaimed books. His newest, just out, This is Europe. Also, Fragile Empire, a study of Vladimir Putin's Russia, very timely and before his time. And This is London, a book about the British capital. And we're very pleased to have Ben joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Your new book, This is Europe, a follow-up to a very similar genre, which was critically acclaimed, This is London. I'm curious, how did you come to writing this kind of book, and especially this kind of series? Well, I first decided to write my book on London when I had, you know, returned mentally and physically to the city after spending a lot of time working on Russia. And I felt that I didn't recognise the London that I'd grown up in. The city had been so transformed by a giant influx of migration and money from the rest of the world. And I wanted to bring some of the techniques of a foreign correspondent to to London and the chief amongst them was the assumption that you don't know um, that you don't know you know what you're facing and that you approach things with uh, an open mind so my book this is London it's a journey around London with me as a narrator I introduce you to people and then you're under you enter into these encounters where you sort of speak and meet with a whole variety of new of new Londoners, all of them immigrants, that give you an insight into um, the city of today. And when I wanted to write a follow-up book, I decided I wanted to write a book about Europe, and I decided that I wanted to push that technique one bit further, and that is by getting rid of the narrator. I felt that the narrator is the sort of old-fashioned European travel writer, the sort of great white male wandering around in tweed across uh, Europe or the Middle East. We sort of kind of sort of got in the way of speaking and listening to the uh, people I'd met on. That's my more for topic. like Netflix cooking shows now. That that that's really where that where that goes now. That genre. I, I think it does. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a really powerful way to write uh, about the rest of the world anymore, especially about Europe. Like the kind of headlines are full of millions of Americans traveling to Europe, people TikToking left and right about lack of water or whatever from visits to uh, to Italy and or France. You know, the the traveler when writing about Europe is it, really quite redundant. Like you don't need that 
filler going, here I arrived at Charles de Gaulle Airport. Wow, busier than I expected. And then, you know, wandering around <laughs> in the streets of Berlin going, God, heavens no, you know, there's currywurst on sale here. Like that, I just felt was redundant in an age of mass travel and of mass experience of abroad. And, and so, Ben, in terms of like how you get your inspiration for your cities that you're going to write about and like, is that based upon your own lived experience or do you go to other places for inspiration or are there, are there people who are speaking to you and, and really influencing your work? Well, it's a different story of each book. So with London, it very much was about me and, and my life and my relationship with the the city. I felt that there had been a different city demographically and culturally when I was growing up and it had become a new one through a dramatic change of its ethnic and racial demographics and a rapid churn of its elites with vast amounts of money coming in from abroad. With um, the book I've just written, This Is Europe, I initially wanted to write a book about France and I went to France, I'm part French, I have a French passport and identity, I speak French and I wrote 40, 50,000 words of a book that I hated. And I hated it and I kind of threw it away metaphorically. I kind of X'd out of it and didn't come back in because I didn't like this sort of narrator wandering around. I thought it was annoying. And I felt that there wasn't really a French story here. Everything that interested me was a European story because the thing, the themes that I kept coming onto were immigration, climate change, supply chains, war, and how technology was completely changing and influencing everything about the way we live now. I kind of want you to write one about New York. I feel like it would be fascinating and it sort of has a lot of the same themes and, and you know, even the New York that I grew up in is far different from the one that I inha- inhabit today with my kids and, 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 and as an adult. And I think that that's fascinating that like you, you know, you're really taking a deep dive into these themes. Um, as a writer, which I am not, uh, what's your process like? I mean, obviously you do research, do you lock yourself in a cabin? Do you go someplace, you know, uh, do you have a place that you write? And and what does it feel like to get 40, 50,000 words into a book and just say, this is, you know, um, <laughs> have, have the fortitude to just say, no, we're going to, we're going to start again or X out. Like that's, that's pretty impressive. And uh, would love to hear more about it. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, these books are journalism and they're literary journalism. It's really trying to push journalism to its limits and make journalism as immersive as possible. That's really my kind of principle here. I want people to read these books and feel like they were there and they lived these experiences of these people and that they met these people. One of the reasons I chose to write this book about a narrator is that when you read these like old classics, it could be V.S. Naipaul or Paul Theroux, a dude wanders around the world and basically judges people, sometimes favorably, often not. And that's not really what I get out of this. What I get out of this is I travel around, I meet people, they say things that are completely different. I don't arrive really with an agenda. I don't arrive with, you know, I don't arrive and just tell them what I think of them. They tell me what they think of the world. And I wanted to give the reader that experience. And I think we live in a particular age where readers are infantilized and I, you know, I think we've, we're in a really dumb moment where it comes to, to book writing with editors 
insisting that you have to give people basically a kind of Wikipedia introduction if you mention anything kind of uh, more than more than a base level of complexity. So how do those interviews get written up? They get written up like this. I, you know, look for people that fit basically the arc of the book. That's like filling in a huge anthropological puzzle. I want... I wanted This Is Europe to represent all the kind of super regions of the continent, the Balkans, Central Europe, Iberia. I wanted it to have 50-50 gender split. I also wanted it to have Europe's kind of sexual diversity in it. it. I wanted it to have a class split, an ethnic split, racial, racial split. And more importantly, I wanted it to be on the arc of life. Because the most important thing about how you experience the world isn't, you know, are you Finnish or are you Estonian? It's you know, how old are you? Are you young? Are you old? Are you, you know, where are you on life's journey? Not to get too Shakespearean, seven ages of man. And that meant I was filling in a giant puzzle. So very quickly, a lot of characters I met, I thought they were amazing. I've written up their stories. And then I find myself in a situation going, oh God, I need to find a woman over the age of 60 who's mourning her parents, who's living in Scandinavia. So it suddenly became quite complicated. So how do the interviews go? So what happens is I turn up and... I, if you were going to be my my subject, and maybe you will be if I write about New York. You know, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I will definitely not be, but I'm happy to be a social commentator looking in from the outside. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, at least I've got one volunteer, and that's sort of how it goes. Because the people in the book are people who wanted to be in the book. You know, with this kind of engagement, they're people who really wanted to be in the book, that wanted to to say something, that believed that their story said something about the way we live now. So if you were going to be in the book, I would, the future book about New York, I would turn up and I'd go to you. You're going to tell me your whole life story. I'm going to record it and I'm going to make transcripts of it. And then I'm going to write it up following as close as possible the beats of your own story. Because I believe that people are often the best storytellers. You know, following the beats as far as possible, I'm going to write it up like a short story with quotes. It's going to be a short story and then there are going to be quotes from you through it. So it's like, you know, reading reading Balzac, but with the the, fir- the wall broken with kind of quote marks in it. And then I'm going to bring it back to you. And you're going to tell me, no, actually, yes. Wow. You're going to burst into tears. You're so moved about it, which is often what happened. And then you're going to provide me photos to make it even more immersive. Like as if, you know, you were kind of WhatsApping me about your experience, uh, your experience along the experience along the way. So, you know, that's why the people are kind of part of the project. So people go, you know, how did you how did you choose them? How did you find them? I found them through every single journalistic technique possible. Online, I found people in shelters, I found people on the street, I found people, you know, through friends or through through newspapers. And, you know, the the, the people in the book, people who wanted to be in the book, and also crucially the people that I kind of believed in and people that I trusted and people who kind of really opened their opened their hearts to me. And they're not the only people I interviewed. I interviewed for both of these books, I would have interviewed hundreds of people. You know, the, right. you know, we've got maybe combined both books. I think it's less than fifty people written up in this way. That is very small amount of the people that I've sat down with. Right. And, and I'm curious, having gone through all these places, and you talk about sort of, you know, coming up with a theory of the case in some ways. You've, you've done sort of initial analysis. You're seeing things changing. You want to sort of have a book that takes a certain arc. You look for a certain types of, of, of people as you're, as you're meeting people. Do, does your theory of the case evolve as you are meeting the people that you wanted to meet? So you know, do, do you sort of say... I have a 
a kind of anthro- I have a sort of punk anthropologist sense of what I want to investigate. I'm far more like a kind of academic parachuting and kind of observing. I know that you know I want to look at look at life along an arc from teenagehood to death because I can't interview a you know baby or a child really, and I can't interview somebody who's dead. And I want to then you know represent class and labor and ethnic diversity so that's my kind of main main frame and then i kind of think you know i want to show how life has changed and that way maybe it is kind of what you're saying kind of theory of the case like i was very interested i wanted to talk about the big themes that i think are kind of changing europe now and those are war in syria in ukraine both of which transformed europe i want to talk about technology and how like the algorithm has basically got its finger on every love affair or interaction in today's uh, Europe, if not world. And I want to talk about kind of supply chains, uh, work, you know, and climate change, how that's affecting things. So that's my kind of construct there. I've got a schema and then I've got a set of, I guess, research questions. And then I go in. And the, the thing that I do is I think wittingly or unwittingly conservative or liberal journalists do end up massaging or even sort of censoring the people they interview without realizing it. You meet somebody, they say something completely outrageous or, or or shocking, you just don't include it. Maybe because it makes your article look not serious. Maybe because it diverts from this. And I, for me, it was like really very important. Like, I'm not, this is what they said, it's going in. And, you know, if, you know, you've got a very sympathetic person that says one thing like that, or you've got a, you've got, you know, it's all, it's all got to go in. I think that's actually quite a radical act, like not you know, not cutting and trimming, you know, letting people have that experience of meeting, uh, of meeting people and not kind of cocooning, uh, not cocooning them. So uh, I have a question, sort of more broader question, but it just strikes me that you must have an editor with a ton of confidence in you to let you go on, go on this journey because like, this is what they get out of bed. And it's what, it's like five years of work, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is incredible. I mean, I think back in college of some of the sociology type readings that, that we were assigned and, uh, one that always stood out to me because I'm from Chicago was a very famous book. There are no children here by Alex Kotlowitz, where he really mm-hmm. has a very similar style of of bringing you into the story of these two kids growing up in uh, in, in in the public housing uh, of the city of Chicago. Um, and you though are taking that onto a whole new level with like 50 stories, you know, 20 some cities. I mean, this is this is a lot. Well, basically, I'll tell you why, is I I wrote this book sort of in defiance of the fact that most, most, when I go into the bookshop these days, I'm just so depressed. I see all these incredibly thin books written in like two weekends in the Hamptons uh, that are basically just campaigns. They were written by a kind of grifting journalist in order to, um, you know, give talks, uh, give speeches or do consultancy for you know, X and X and Y. And then when I look at the fiction table, I'm even more depressed because it's, you know, millennials are, are writing these kind of MFA-like uh, novels that are stuck in the dead end of modernism, writing about things, the insight, the kind of interiority of their experience, which was very radical to talk about that when modernism was invented in the 1920s. But now all of these kind of various kind of mental states are practically commodified. And I can't go on Instagram by about being, you know, sort of somebody trying to sell me a new app that's going to help my kind of mental health. And I think that both this kind of decline in journalism, this decline in novel, novel writing, 
has abandoned, you know, the great social endeavor of nonfiction and and fiction. Like if you look at somebody like Balzac, you know, like Comédie Humaine, you know, which is very inspiring to me, the guy was just banging out novels that are a bit like journalism in the 19th century. He was fascinated about class and gender and what that meant and how people rose and fell in a society about what societies did to people. You know, what would happen if you put a rich person with a poor person? He wanted to go that show the whole of France in early modernity through all these through all these novels. He wasn't interested in like writing a novel about what it was like to be a guy that drank too much coffee sitting around at home with his feet up in Paris. And like I wanted to capture a bit of that. And also, you know, um, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, that kind of great book about about Chicago, like Americans are much better at nonfiction journalism than Europeans. You know, Americans are have been kind of much better at this for uh, for for generations. You've got people like kind of Barbara, kind of Erin Wright, kind of really really showing the way. And we've never really been able to land it in uh, in England or France or Germany. And I think one of those reasons is we don't think of ourselves as a playing field of continental scale that requires journalism. We think of ourselves as a little playing field where the British elite, the French elite, and the German elite know everything, and therefore don't don't need to be bothered to do this kind of uh, kind of reporting. And you know, so I was really inspired by a lot of that American writing. So, so Ben, you're a chronicler of the Jewish community of Europe as well, yeah. Jewish communities of Europe. Can you take us on a similar sort of top level tour of of what's going on on the continent for Jews right now? Um, and is sure, it, is is it? I mean, you know, we we. I mean, I, I joke uh, that I'm often one of those these guys who thinks the world ends at the Hudson River, uh, yeah. and I've you know I've been to London, I've been to Paris, but to really tell us in more detail um, for for a lot of our listeners who may not be as exposed to the the real life every day of what it's like for the Jewish communities of Europe. Great. Well, I can tell you a little bit more about kind of myself and my own kind of Jewish Jewish engagement. Yeah, and, you know, I kind of grew up in London. I've kind of. I've, Sephardic, but also some Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi heritage, you know, family in France and uh, family is split between France and the UK. And that's really actually very representative of what it means to be a European Jew now, because most European Jews are in Britain and France. You've got two large communities with infrastructure and institutions and kind of newspapers like the Jewish Chronicle, where I, where I, where I write for, and I'm a, I'm a columnist that have, you know, there are mini societies, like very mini. You know, there are less less Jews in. You know, there are, there are not very many Jews in both Britain, Britain and France. But you know, the, they have the society, the societies in them comparable to like a, a U.S. state or comparable to like a small Israeli Israeli city. And then beyond that, you've got a couple of zones. You've got Germany, which is kind of sort of shadow community on paper. It looks like there are a lot of Jews, but not really. It's not really a kind of a society in that way. It's a kind of small one. You know, mostly composed of people that have moved from uh, Eastern Europe that, you know, have a kind of watery sense of Ju- Judaism after the Soviet experience. If we look kind of south and north, we've got a lot of very, very small Jewish communities, which, you know, they're little shtetlach, they're little villages, even little families that like you've got tiny Jewish communities, say in Rome or in Istanbul, very, you know, small, closed, orthodox worlds, you know, not Haredi overnots, but small class traditional kind of Mazorti worlds. And then when we look east, things get interesting because you have, you know, there you have the kind of the ghost of uh, the kind of great Yiddish, the great Yiddish world, where you have a large amount of people in Russia and Ukraine that are of 
Jewish descent or, you know, what we like to call Jewish by the law of return in relation to Israel. So I'll be interested, they'll be interested to know how much longer that, uh, that law of return will stay the same given politics in Israel at this current moment. And you have, you know, really these, these large community, these formerly large communities, the Russian Jewish community and the Ukrainian Jewish community that have both decreased with astonishing size in my, in my lifetime that have really emigrated abroad and that have become part of the American Jewish community and that have become part of the um, Israeli Jewish community and have become in a small way part of the basically the German Jewish community as people who've left from those areas and then in a small way have become part of the British Jewish community or even in a tinier way the Italian Jewish community or those in kind of Sweden or Denmark in a much much smaller smaller scale but so Europe's really divided into three sets of Jewish experiences Britain and France small Jewish societies stand on their own two feet you've got these tiny kind of closed family communities in the south or in smaller European countries like like Switzerland you know that don't really have like they're not going to have like multiple Jewish ways of being Jewish There's one way of being Jewish and if right. you don't really like it, it might not be a great place for you and then you've got you know the remains of the Russian Ukrainian Jewish community so let's just talk about the Russian Jewish community which is, of yeah. course in a way the mother community of you know of uh of American Jewry, in a way, like there are these incredible statistics showing the percentage of the world Jewish community that was living in the Russian Empire in the 1896 census. And now we see the Russian Jewish community essentially being composed of tens of thousands of people who identify as Jewish in in censuses. You know, that's really a kind of shocking, shocking decline. And I think that you know the future of the Russian Jewish community on current trajectory is being actually a bit like Iran. Like there is a community in Iran that is a small orthodox core to that community, you know, has a school, has a small yeshiva, keeps its head down. They want to stay there and they need to stay there for kind of, it's their livelihoods, it's their homeland, there are reasons to stay. Is it getting smaller year by year? Yes. Is it a flourishing Jewish community or society? Absolutely not. Is it comparable to what it was or could have been? Absolutely not. One of the things I think is so sad is that, you know, Putin's destroyed a lot of things. And what we don't think about him having done is destroyed one of our things, which is that there was this, and it was really an American, Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian dream. There was a dream, you know, personified by people like the Chabad, you know, Chabad's Rebbe Schneerson, that when the Soviet Union empty, opened up, millions of Jews would leave in order to stay being Jewish or express themselves in a deeper way. But actually... There were millions of people in Russia that had Jewish descent and they didn't even know they were Jewish. And as long as you established a community infrastructure across Russia, there would be a small, of a couple of hundred thousand Jewish community that would replenish and replenish and replenish and replenish with people finding their roots or, you know, making kind of, I hate the word conversion when it's a kind of, kind of mixed background, you know, that would kind of affirm their Judaism, you know, re-enter the covenant through this way or that way. And all you had to do was build the schools and make, Judaism cool and project strength and confidence. And the tragic thing is that that was working. That was really working in Russia and Ukraine. And somebody like Zelensky is an example of that. You know, people who felt comfortable, happy to say, you know, proud enough to uh, literally, in his case, pretend to play a piano with his penis singing Harvard Nagila on TV in his previous incarnation. And, you know, in Russia, there was a moment, you had a lot of oligarchs, a lot, and Judaism was cool in Russia. And Putin, by 
empowering you know the worst people in Russian society, i.e., the kind of criminalized security agency kind of uh, bandit bandit uh, segment of that society, and pushing it in this ever more autocratic and unstable direction. Already from 2014, you see the Jewish community's size beginning to implode because people who'd been thinking for the 10 years previously, you know what? Yeah, it's a bit annoying and a lot of things I don't like, but it's going to get better every year. I'm making a lot of money here and it's kind of fun in a way. They were like, forget it. You know, this is not where I'm going to have to do this. Do you think in a in a post-war Ukraine, there is sort of a, and given the, the new and deepening ties between the United States and Ukraine, there is a a rebound or a renaissance even more. I mean, I spent time in Ukraine in 2001 as a college student in Odessa when it was really fresh, when when being Jewish was like a new concept for a lot of people to come home to the fold. Do you yeah. think given the kind of new and very deepening ties between the United States and Ukraine, there will be a follow, you know, following the war um, consequent, you know, a, a renaissance in the, in the Ukrainian Jewish community? because of those ties or no? uh, well, it depends how the war ends yeah you know so currently a kind of few weeks ago i spoke to the kind of rabbi of harkiv and he told me that you know two things have happened you know the build-up to you know, this is one of the rabbis you know sent from chabad like really sent out sent out to kind of be this kind of shaliach the kind of you know um you know almost the kind of missionary do this missionary work bringing people back and you know, in the outbreak of the war, they built up pretty strong community. Small, but strong, you know, it was doing, it was doing okay. They had a school, they had everything that you needed for something sustainable over the long, long, long term. You know, maybe not just all decreasing ever so slightly. School, community, people they knew in the administration, big businessmen, funding, it was going okay. War happens, and out of the kids at this school, half of them are somewhere else. In Ukraine, right. in Israel, they're not there anymore. Some people have started to come back. Now, the war's eased a little bit there. Now, the Russians are no longer literally, um, you know, sort of surround, surrounding surrounding it. But the Russians are bombing it every day. So how long are they going to keep bombing it? If they're going to keep bombing it every day for one year, two year, three year, four year, like these places being turned, to use a kind of Israeli metaphor, into a permanent and giant nightmarish version of Sterot in, uh, in the Negev, like constantly being bombarded by, by Hamas, then yeah, in you know the Jewish community probably is gonna. Uh, a lot of people are gonna say, "I feel proud of Ukraine. I love Ukraine. I hate Putin." But you know, I can't send my kid to a nursery where he might be gonna blown up by an errant Russian missile. Just saw the shocking footage from Odessa, you know, World Heritage Site, and one of the you know the Ukrainian places where there is a Jewish community in, in Ukraine. And if you know the Russians have really got the capacity and the desire to start indiscriminately bombing that city with uh, more and more rockets again and again and again. A lot of that Jewish community is going to lose. It depends how the war ends. Like if it actually ends, there's a chance that these communities could consolidate again, and that's because a lot of rabbis have told me they're mostly old people. But there are a lot of people we didn't even know about. We thought we knew all the Jews around here in that kind of extended family, you know, Judah way. People who came out and literally came out of nowhere going, I'm Jewish and I want to be here. And that's because we had kind of aid resources, basically. Yeah. You know, they, they've started coming to the synagogue and connecting with us. And, you know, so, you know, it depends how the, it depends how the war ends. And that's why mm. the war ending well for Ukraine or, end, you know, is also a Jewish cause because this kind of indeterminate gray zone is terrible for Ukraine because it can't join NATO. It can't join the, can't join the EU. It can't 
rebuild, and it also kind of starts to wither the Jewish community. And the flip side of that, that's the Ukraine piece of it. Inside Russia, though, what happens to the Jewish community there? Uh, I think it's like Iran, is that they, it will continue to... You just see continued deterioration of... of just- well, there's like a floor where, you know, it's, you know, unless, you know, with the, look, with the exception of, uh, you know, some societies in... With the exception, really, of like Yemen, you know, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, you know, these two of those countries where I've got some of my own ancestry from, um, there are these small residual Jewish communities, you know, even in the Arab world, like in Tunisia or in Morocco. It's a couple of thousand people. They keep quiet. They keep their heads down. They've got their schools. They've got their yeshivas. They've got little kosher things. They very quietly go to Israel, the rest of the world when they need to. Are they getting smaller year by year? Yeah. Do they, are they kind of like, quite set, like not very great little ghetto-y things to be? Yeah. Are the people staying there really because they got like very big business interests and they don't really want to leave or they don't know how to leave or they're looking after old people? Yeah. Is it going to be like that in Russia? I think yes. I don't think it's going to end up like Baghdad, where the last I heard, you know, the city of my ancestors had like literally one Jewish person in it, or it's not going to end up like Aleppo or Damascus, like, you know, God, God willing. And it's probably not going to end up like Cairo, where the kind of atmosphere of kind of hate and anti-Semitism on a daily basis means that, you know, only at, like, like the amount of Jews you could like literally gather in the room that I'm speaking to you from right now would, would be there. It's not going to be, it's not going to be like that. Moving west uh, on the continent, though, uh, back to the two cities that that have the largest Jewish communities in presence. You had a, a most recent uh, column in the Chronicle on France. Yes, uh, we've obviously in the states been watching the upheaval uh, in the streets over over in Paris, uh, but you're looking at the impact potentially on the Jewish community there of everything unfolding. Where, what is the trajectory today for French Jews? We we know it as rising anti-Semitism, people being thrown out of windows. I mean, these are the kind of headlines we fear, people afraid to wear yarmulkes when they're in the streets. Yeah, well, so the first thing is that that is, you know, reasonably, uh, that's a reasonably large Jewish community. That is, you know, that is, um, by some measures, the third largest Jewish community uh, in the world after Israel and the, uh, you know, after Israel and the, and, and, and the United States. It's got scores of schools and synagogues and per capita, like more kosher restaurants than the United States. So it's easier to go out and eat nice kosher food in good restaurants in Paris than it is in certain parts of New York. <laughs> I said nice kosher food. And it's, um, you know, it's a community that is about a third Ashkenazi, you know, descendant of, you know, Jews from the east of France, from Alsace-Lorraine and the Rhineland that were always there, and Jews from various waves from Eastern Europe that came there during French modernity and who survived the Holocaust. And it's mostly descendant of the descendants of people who came from North Africa with the end of the French Empire, people who came very traumatized by the anti-Semitism that they were experiencing, backlash to the creation of the State of Israel, by the sudden collapse of you know, European rule in these uh, these territories, especially in the case of Algeria, where Algeria was part of France. It was a part of the French state. There was no difference on paper, even though underneath, uh, on the small print, there was a lot of difference between, you know, Algiers and, and Marseille. And these communities basically felt they had to leave, you know, more or less en masse. There are some that stay in 
uh, a small community still in existence in Tunisia and a small one still exists in Morocco and Algeria is really not very much like really it's a bit like Egypt in that in that sense so these people came often to the same kind of bonia with Arab neighbors they were very working class for the most part and usually with these families it would be a situation where there would be a couple of brothers and sisters the ones who'd already gone to school and spoke French went to France the ones that didn't went to Israel so the families are very immediately tied into Israel in a way that's slightly not really the case for the American Jewish community or for the um, for the for the British Jewish uh, British Jewish community. Like they might have been the case for like families leaving. You know, I think there was about half a million Jews that came immediately after World War Two via somewhere or another to the United States. Maybe with a time lag of ten or fifteen years. Maybe with those families, there would have been a brother or sister that ended up in in Israel. But like, it's not really the case for. 90% of, Amer- of American uh, American Jews. You know, that's the, that's how these families are. So there's a very heightened sense of identification of Israel and familiarity of Israel and pride about Israel and intimacy of Israel. It's often the grandfather or the grandmother or the brother will be in, will, will, will be in Israel or the fathers or grandparents' ge- grandparents' generation. And there has been a, quite a large level of Aliyah year on year. Every year, it might look about... You know, a couple of hundred, couple of fa- you know, couple of hundred, but actually, these are pretty small communities. And if you stretch that out over the decades, you know, a not insignificant percentage of French Jews have moved to to Israel. You know, ballpark five. And one of the reasons they have is because of the declining condition in these famous bolia, these suburbs of uh, Paris, when it comes to security. There's a couple of key things to look at here. The first is a graph that I can't show you, but I can tell you about, which was in the FT, which showed employment rates for immigrants and natives in Britain, France, and Germany. In Britain, in Germany, no difference. You know, basically no difference. Like immigrants arrive, they're all employed, they're all working away. In France, I hate to say it, black and white. You know, if you're an immigrant and if you've got a North African or a West African name and you're Muslim, basically, not really likely to get a job. It's very difficult. You're moving from a medium-low unemployment scenario to a super unemployment scenario. And you're living in a society which stands out in two ways from the rest of Western Europe. First is just rates of violence and petty crime. Like The rates of violence and petty crime in France make it an outlier, just much more of it. It's like much more rates of violence. It's not comparable to the United States or Russia, societies with either abundant guns or super abundant guns. But... It's more violent than Paris, it's more violent than London, it's more violent than Milan, it's more violent than all but a few cities with notorious kind of Italian-Albanian mafia uh, (laughs) contributions to their local economies in the south of Italy. And the second outlier is French police. So British police, easy to knock it, easy to make fun of it. German police, similarly, you know, not institutions you think about as, you know, we've got a lot of problems. They made a big effort to integrate non-white Muslim people into the force, have community engagement, make sure that policing's done with consent, and they don't carry guns. And in Germany, the amount of pe- the last person killed for resisting arrest in was about 10 years ago. In France, 17 people have been shot by traffic cops in the last 18 months. What's going on here? Like in, in Europe, this is really an outlier where the French police has become a violent, very empowered and yes, institutionally racist force policing a ethnic, ethnic minority suburbs where you have super high unemployment rates, very high rates of 
crime, delinquency, unemployment, and yes, very high rates of anti-Semitism, and yes, very high rates of anger and uh, anger and rejection and hostility towards a lot of aspects of the French Republic, the French state, or French culture and tradition from some small, small parts, small parts of that. Places which have been very fertile, places that you can imagine, you know, where racism, unemployment, police violence are all present and lack of lack of opportunities have been fertile ground for Islamism, terrorism, recruitment for ISIS, and so forth. So looking at this, what's happened? You know, France has been in a cycle where you get a cycle of the suburbs, people don't have any jobs in the suburbs. They're angry, they're angry and upset. They're angry and they're, up, they're upset. They're being policed by people who are very right, violent and racist. You know, then you get explosions of anger. The police crack down even harder. This, this spirals up and up and up. In various of these spirals, let me go on to about two, 2005, various synagogues have been attacked and Jews have been accused or viewed as like metaphors for the state, for the elite, for money, for, for banking. You know, and whenever things go wrong in the Middle East, because you've got Sephardic, you've got predominantly Sephardic Jewish communities in these areas next to very close to Israel, abutting, you know, North African, uh, you know, Arab Berber communities, you get a lot of tension that rises very quickly there. So that's that's sort of the big thing that's going on. Like when I was speaking to kind of people in France about what had happened recently, I was told, you know, pe- people in this you know, one of the big, I don't know what the equivalent of it would be in, in New York, be the equivalent of the golders green of, of of London, you know. You can't find an equivalent in New York because every every borough has at least three of these. But it was, you know, a kind of big middle-class Jewish community, community place called Sarcel that the kosher supermarket had been ransacked. And people went, oh, it was great because they weren't targeting Jews, they were just targeting everybody. <laughs> you know, when that's the kind of low expectation of what's going on, right. we shouldn't be surprised that the emigration rate is, is going to pick up. And we're going to see a larger amount of French young people um, of Jewish heritage moving. We're only picking them up when they go to Israel because we have the Aliyah data. Right. Nobody's counting how many French Jews are coming to London. I can tell you there are a lot of them here. And they're becoming a larger and larger presence in our family synagogue or in the community that I grew up in. And there are more and more of them in Montreal, in the United States, you know, kind of French or Franco-Moroccan uh, yeah. Minions. Uh, there's at least there's at least one or two of them on the Upper West Side. I can, t- uh, I can tell you that. All right, all right, Ben. So before we let you go, we like to get a little bit of a better sense of who our guests are. So we have something called the lightning round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions just to get you a real quick answer. They're they're more lighthearted. Oh, um, so uh, I'm going to start with what's your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And if you want to use profanity in Yiddish, it's totally okay. Oh, I should have. My wife should have been accompanying me because um, I'm. You, you could do Hebrew too if you if you don't have a Yiddish one on the oh, tip no, of your it's tongue. Like, it's just not like my, um, I'm Baghdadi Jewish on one side, and I'm German Jewish on the other. So Yiddish was not really, not very, really very, very present in my <laughs> uh, family uh, family family home growing up. I do love the Yiddish language. There's lots of kind of cool things about it. Uh, I guess the Yiddish phrase that I've kind of picked up and. Uh, I guess the Yiddish phrase that I like best is probably the, the phrase the schnorrer. I think that the power of that phrase and the evocativeness. Don't be it, a schnorrer. I think it's just such a wonderful. I don't think it could have existed in any other language in any other context, and it just feels like the most 
Jewish of uh, Jewish of words. Yeah, don't be a Shnora. Okay, All right, Rich, uh, you a, go. Lot, a lot of cities visited for your book. This is Europe. What was your favorite city that you visited? Um, favorite city that I visited? Well, I took actually um, one of the chapters takes place in rural Portugal. And it's a chapter about a kind of man who moves from the city, tries to go back to the countryside, and his house is burned down, and he ends up trying to raise sheep, and he wants to try and see if he can go back. Can he return? And when I was in this area, I started realizing that so many of the Sephardic Jews of London, you know, had actually left these areas during the Inquisition in the 17th century. And I went to a uh, a small town called Belmonte, where there had been a community of hidden of hidden Jews of Muranos that had been living in in secret really until the twentieth century until the twentieth century. And I went and I spent uh, you know a couple of Shabbats with them. Very small amount of two people, twenty thirty. Hate set you know visibly a little bit too much. First cousin marriage and sibling 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 marriage. And the younger ones have been Israelified, Hebraized. They've had they've been brought into kind of mainstream orthodoxy, which has sort of taken away their kind of unique Murano culture. But it's a better life. This is what they this is what they this is what they wanted. But with the old people, it, was, it used to be a very kind of female-led form of Judaism. Interestingly, I remember sitting in this Kabbalah Shabbat, and you know, and the women. Very old women who would have grown up in the last secret Jews, the last secret Jews of the world, I think, came in and were doing these very old traditional prayers at the back of the synagogue in this kind of mixture of um, Portuguese and and Hebrew. I remember, like one of them looked like one of my kind of relatives, very elderly Sephardic relatives, and I thought, wow, like what a what a kind of blessing to be able to see the end of this thing, to be able to have to, to have seen the end of that. Uh, that part of my own family heritage, like a lot of my ancestors were Moranos and left to, you know, left left Spain and Portugal in the 17th century. So for me, that was very moving. It's not actually in This Is Europe, but it's a little Jewish aside for you that uh, I had. All right. Favorite Jewish food, like favorite Jewish dish. And it could be from anywhere. It could be Ashkenazi. It could be Sephardic. It could be Mizrahi. It could be Portuguese. It could be Portuguese. Um, I've got a theory here, which is that the Ashkenazim do the best desserts. But there isn't, there's never really, I think, been a competitive, like Sephardic, kind of Mizrahi, kind of sugar glaze, sort of rugelach competitors. I guess kind of rugelach and babka would be my favorite Jewish. Uh, do you have a, do you have a specific favorite rugula or babka or or no, it's just any any will do? Okay. My wife makes and buys. I'm getting uh, okay. inspiration exactly. for a book. It's called This Is Jewish Food, and it's like <laughs> you just chapter one. Tzachi was in the kitchen. His rugula was overdone. Um, in terms of kind of um, you, you know, I like all the traditional kind of Iraqi Jewish foods. I think best, you know, sort of. Um, the sort of sambusaks and the kind of soup, the sort of uh, the sort of uh, the soups and the kind of kibbe and uh, all of that. That's that's I think for my for my my favorite. Excellent, Ben Judah. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you so much, guys. Well, Rich, a lot to think about. A lot of uh, history. 
and a lot of uh, future to, to think about with uh, with Ben's writings and Ben's uh, columns. I know for one, I will be putting it in my regular to read list uh, of all his columns that are coming out and just you know thinking about all these future and, and where we've come as a people and where we're going. Well, I think it's important. And this is where there's always this divide between sort of sociology uh, and sort of ethnic studies and being on the ground inside stories and, and the human nature of, of a lot of these stories uh, that we just see in headlines, who are the people behind uh, sort of the larger news arcs uh, that we're watching versus political challenges, geopolitical challenges, choices that governments have to make, uh, even with some of these stories being present in our lives. And so we sort of follow a lot of these things, Syrian refugees, migration issues, war in Ukraine, all of these things, Muslim protests in Paris, uh, through the lens of geopolitics, through the lens of security, through the lens of Jewish community anti-Semitism priorities, however your lens is, it's very rare that you go deep into a society, into a group, profile someone, really see the humanity, the challenges from their perspective. It, it, it does, for those who read this book, and you should, it grabs at your heart in many of these stories, but you also do need to take into context the larger geopolitical issues afoot, the challenges of governing, the challenges of governments. Um, and somehow find that balance uh, as we move forward. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. Well, if you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.